And so if you just get locked into positions and egos and you get caught into arguments, mm -hmm. you get locked in without getting the kind of agreement you want. Arguments don't really work in your kitchen table mm -hmm. and they don't really work in a divorce. I, as good as I am at arguing, I'm, and I went to law school because I was great at arguing, I've never seen a spouse in a divorce change their mind because of arguments. Mm -hmm. All arguments do is get them to argue back. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm gonna get their spouse to say yes, I have to be more clever than that. I have to be smarter than that. Mm -hmm. They're not gonna say yes because of an argument. They're gonna say yes because of, I found a way to help meet their interests. Welcome to the Daisy Camp Podcast. Daisy Camp is a woman's nonprofit resource for education and empowerment before, during, and after her divorce. It's our mission to be that safe place for you to get support and reliable information that you'll need to grow into your ever-expanding life. Hi, and welcome back to the Daisy Camp Podcast. My name is Emily John, and I'm so glad to have Ron Oski with us for another episode here today. Ron is a wonderful resource we have here at Daisy Camp. He is a collaborative attorney and mediator. He's also a speaker on, and an author on divorce. And in our last episode, Ron and I did this 30,000-foot approach to what is divorce? What are the ways that uh, you can go about getting a divorce? And how does that work? And so today, we are going to dive a little bit deeper into um, that that first part of divorce when you're first getting started. And we're going to start talking about how to get an agreement that you really want or that will really work when you are going through your divorce. And Ron is here with me today. Hi, Ron. Welcome back. Hi. I'm, I, oh, I'm really glad to be back. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. And so we started talking in the last episode about this idea of uh, interest-based thinking or, you know, what are some ways that you can get to an agreement and how does that work in divorce? So can we just kind of start there, maybe with a little overview of, of what you do with collaborative-based uh, law and then how that works when trying to get to an agreement? And that's kind of the final part of this whole process, isn't it? Yes, thank you very much. As I mentioned in the first episode, almost all divorces end in agreement. 98% mm -hmm. of the time, people reach an agreement. Which so is question, good. Yes, which yes. is great. I mean, people don't want to go to trial. They want to reach agreements. Now we're going to talk about how to get good agreements, lasting agreements, because it isn't just enough to get an agreement. Sometimes reaching, people reach an agreement out of frustration, or they've run out of money, or this or that, mm -hmm. and they reach agreements that they don't like, and then they wind up fighting about the agreement later on, or they reach agreements that focuses on some of the small items but loses sight of the bigger items like the well-being of their children or right. their things. And so what I really want to talk about is how do you go about reaching agreements with your spouse that really hit on the important issues, agreements that will last for years so you don't wind up going back in court, and agreements so you look back and say, yes, we did it the right way. So mm -hmm. um, that's where I want my main focus to be. And, and it in order to understand that, there's, as you mentioned, something called interest-based bargaining that is used in collaborative divorce and used in mediation and used in, I think, really enlightened divorce cases that is a, a tremendous insight. It's something that came out of the Harvard Negotiation Project about 40 years ago, led to a book called Getting the Yes, and it's one of the most brilliant ideas about negotiating that, that I've ever seen and is used mm -hmm. a lot. And it's something that unless you're a lawyer or someone negotiates for a living, you've never heard that phrase and wouldn't need to. But if you're in the middle of a divorce, understanding what 
interest-based bargaining means is really essential. And to help you understand it, I want to compare it to the way we normally bargain, which is what's called position-based bargaining. Okay. Normally, if I bargain for something, we sometimes lock into positions. We say, okay, I want this dollar amount, or I want the house, or I want this custody label. Or, right. Or if you're negotiating for a house, I want this dollar amount. And then the other person said they state their dollar amount and they state your position and everybody gets locked into positions and it really gets hard to budge once you're in a position. And that's what gets expensive and acrimonious and makes it more difficult. And mm-hmm. that's what leads to arguments and, and expense and acrimony that you want to avoid. Mm-hmm. A contrast to that is a thing called interest-based bargaining, which in simpler terms, which means talking first about the things that really, really matter to you at the highest level. Mm-hmm. So to think of interest-based bargaining, think about um, your divorce and say, okay, five or 10 years from now, when I look back on the divorce, what are gonna be the one or two or three things that are gonna matter more than anything else? Mm-hmm. And if I ask you that, very likely, if you've got young children, you're gonna say, well, I want my children to be happy and healthy and I want them to have a good relationship with both parents and and that mm-hmm. will be a high interest. And even on the finance, you're saying, well, I might, I want to make, make sure we get financial stability, that I can move on with my career and I can pay the bills for myself, for the children, mm-hmm. and that we get some closure on those things and some high-level things. Right. You might even have relational goals. You might say, I want to get along with my spouse. We're getting a divorce, but we want to, we have to co-parent these kids. I want to have mutual respect. Mm-hmm. Things like that that are high-level goals. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the purpose for having those high-level goals is several-fold. One is that... First of all, if I ask you those goals and I turn to your spouse and ask him or her those goals, very likely they're going to overlap. I wouldn't be surprised if your spouse has some of the same goals. Right. And that by itself can be kind of energizing to realize, okay, yes, we have our differences, but in the big picture, we agree on a lot of things. And that right. really gives you the incentive to work out some of the darker, more difficult issues. Mm-hmm. Secondly, the difference of the interest versus positions is that there are many, many different ways to solve that. You're not locked in in one position or the other. You're allowed to look at different ways to solve it. And sometimes you can actually get a win-win, meaning both people win mm-hmm. versus a win-lose. And the example that is often given in, in these discussions is example. Let's imagine two people are fighting over an orange, which is an absurd example, I realize, but imagine it for the purpose of this discussion. Right. And they're fighting over it. And you go to, say, an arbitrator, a judge, and the judge says, well, it's simple. We'll just cut the orange in half, and you get half, and the other party gets half. And so say I go to the one party and say, okay, how did it work out? And you got half the orange, right? That's that fair? I said, well, yeah, it's okay. And so what are you going to do with the orange? Well, I'm going to make some orange juice. And I said, well, what are you going to do with the orange peel? Well, I'm going to throw that away. So I go to the other party and say, well, how did it work out for you? And they say, oh, it's okay, I got half. And I said, well, what are you going to do with it? Well, I've got this great recipe and I'm going to make an orange peel. And I'm going to put the orange peel in this recipe. Well, what are you going to do with the juice? Well, I'm going to throw that away. I don't really need the orange juice. Well, both people could have had 100% of what they wanted if somebody had asked for what they wanted. Mm -hmm. But instead, it got cut in half because nobody thought to ask them what they really cared about. Right. now, as you can imagine, we don't have many orange disputes in our state, so that doesn't happen very much. <laughs> sure. But we have something very much like that. I remember people would have custody disputes. I remember years when I would go to trial, back when I did more trial work, where they would fight, over, we'd have these big, awful, nasty custody fights. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the trial, somebody might have asked one of them, well, why did you have this big, nasty custody fight? Well, I was afraid that if I didn't fight for custody, 
she was going to move to another state. Oh, sure. And if you talk to them, and she said, would you realize he was, where you moved to another state? The other prince said, no, no, I was willing to not move to another state. Well, why did you fight so hard for custody? Well, I was afraid I wasn't going to get the support I needed if I didn't get the kind of parenting plan I wanted. Mm -hmm. And you go to the other person and say, well, no, I would have played the support I needed. I mean, if you had asked them what they needed, mm -hmm. if they asked them what they really wanted, they both could have had 100% of what they wanted, but nobody asked. Mm -hmm. They got locked into positions. They got locked into custody fight. And so if you just get locked into positions and egos and you get caught into arguments, mm -hmm. you get locked in without getting the kind of agreement you want. The other piece of this that's really important is to recognize just how useless arguments are in reaching an agreement. Mm -hmm. And and I know that's counterintuitive because I, I know you think, well, if I get a lawyer, my lawyer is going to make this great argument and my spouse will agree. And I, that's a question I get asked a lot. Well, I want you to go in and argue that that he or she should give me this because of blah, blah, blah. And and, and it's natural to assume that because lawyers are, went to law school. I went to law school because I was good at arguing. And mm -hmm. it's, it's natural to think a lawyer who's good at arguing is going to get you what you want. Sure, yeah. But I'll usually say to spouse, well, how many arguments have you had with your spouse during the marriage? And I'll get an answer anywhere, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, okay. How often did your spouse actually change your mind, his, his mind at the end of the argument? I'll get an answer, oh, zero, maybe once, maybe twice. They say, well, okay, you've got a strategy that works one time in 10,000. Now you open to other ideas. Right. Because arguments don't really work in your kitchen table, mm -hmm. and they don't really work in a divorce. I, As good as I am at arguing, I'm, and I went to law school because I was great at arguing, I've never seen a spouse in a divorce change their mind because of arguments. Mm -hmm. All arguments do is get them to argue back. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm going to get their spouse to say yes, I have to be more clever than that. I have to be smarter than that. Mm -hmm. They're not going to say yes because of an argument. They're going to say yes because of, I found a way to help meet their interests. Sure. And if we can, if both lawyers can reach across the table and look for the interests of both sides, then both sides can get a win-win. Mm -hmm. Both sides can get what they want rather than creating arguments that drive them farther apart. And, and that's another kind of key piece to reaching agreements is that um, a lot of people have trouble recognizing that being civil, being and it being being kind in a divorce, being respectful, isn't the same as weakness. Mm -hmm. In fact, you'll often get a better outcome being civil and respectful than if you pick a fight with your spouse. Sure. And the temptation, which is usually driven by fear, to go get somebody aggressive on your side, usually just leads to more arguments and it makes it more difficult for each of you to get what you want. And so... Um, the mm -hmm. idea that being civil is going to make it less likely to get the outcome you want is something that interest-based bargaining helps bring away. You can get a better outcome by being civil and respectful. And, and plus, and this is especially true if you have young children, is that what you don't realize entirely is that your relationship with your spouse is probably the most valuable asset in the entire case. Uh, because if you and your spouse have a horrible co-parenting relationship, mm -hmm. your children are likely to suffer in ways that will be very frustrating for you and your children. Right. And yet if you and your spouse find a way to to be respectful, you don't have to be best friends, although mm -hmm. I've seen some who have, have been, become friends after divorce, 
But if you can find a way to mutually respect each other, then you can raise happy, healthy children in a way that you always dreamed of. Nobody has to lose for that to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and to find a way to negotiate without damaging that relationship is uh, one of the most crucial parts of divorce stuff. Back when I did litigation, we would go in and you could argue in front of a judge and you'd argue and you'd win, but you did so much damage to the relationship. Right. It felt like a bull in a china shop. You just right. came in and, and damaged this relationship in the in the interest of trying to get them what they wanted. Hmm. Oh. Well, and it sounds to me like, um, you know, how do you move out of that mindset of fear and lack and into a mindset of more abundance and faith and, you know, having faith in, in the process. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure people coming into it are starting in a very overwhelmed, fearful state. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And it's absolutely true. I mean, a divorce is really fear-based. There's a lot of emotions. There's anger and sadness, but fear tends to drive a lot of the, the decision-making. And it's mm-hmm. very difficult to make good decisions from a place of fear. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things they need to work through. And, and, and one of the reasons that we often, in the collaborative process, team up with coaches and mental health professionals, and right. in addition to the therapist they might have, is to help them address some of the emotional pieces so that they're better ready to make decisions uh, based less on fear and based upon the confidence they have in what to do the the, the right thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, divorce is unfair that way, and it asks you to make hard decisions at a time when emotions are very, very high. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yet, to make the very best decisions uh, for you and your children, we need to deal with the emotions in a separate place. It's not that the emotions need to be suppressed. Emotions are very real. I don't mm-hmm. blame anybody for the emotions that they have, but I really want to help separate the emotions from the decisions so that they can make better decisions. Another common question I get, particularly if I, for example, if um, my client's spouse has had an affair and, and, mm-hmm. and been done things that are really damaging and hurtful, right? and we're asking them to come to the table and do interest-based bargaining, and they'll say, and, and to be respectful to them uh, for the sake of the children or for sake of a lot of things. And they'll say, well, gee, how would you feel if your spouse cheated on you with your best friend or oh, some awful thing? And, right. and I would say, boy, you know, I have no idea how I'd feel. I imagine I would be really upset and feel really angry. And I probably would want to make a lot of bad decisions. I just hope somebody would help me not do that. Right. I mean, so I, I understand the part of them that is angry or fearful. But what we want to do is help them not make decisions out of anger or fear that will cause them to regret it later. Sure. And so separating emotions from the key decision making mm-hmm. by a team of professionals is one of the key elements of this. So. And so um, when you enter into a collaborative law experience like this, do you start with kind of an evaluation of, well, what are we going to need here? Are we going to need a parenting specialist? Are we going to need a therapist? Um, you know, how are we, how are you kind of gathering all that information? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a great question as well. One of the first things we do is we have a first joint meeting mm-hmm. with both clients and the attorneys and maybe even a coach with them. And we sit down and say, how do we want to do our case here? We, we signed a participation agreement that defines our process. Mm-hmm. We talk about those goals and interests. We get them talking about what do they really care about at the highest level. Mm-hmm. And we'll put those up on the board, get those common interests. And then we say, who do you want on our team to help us achieve those things? Mm-hmm. And usually that means getting a child special for the children. 
Um, usually that means getting a financial person with the numbers, and it may also mean getting a coach to help them with things. Mm-hmm. It may be reaching out to their therapist to help them with issues. And so mm-hmm. we sit down and plan together and say, what are the goals? What are the issues? What are the challenges? And what kind of team is necessary to help us do that? And, and of course, we look at the cost of each of those because I realize not people don't have unlimited resources. Right. So we look at what's the most efficient way to do things and, and I know, as we talked about earlier, um, sometimes people think, well, if we add these other professionals to the team, isn't that going to be more expensive? And if we choose wisely, it doesn't have to be because mm-hmm. they can replace some of what the lawyers do to make your process more cost effective. Sure. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, wonderful. Hmm. Um, so before we wrap up, I just wanted to see, are there any other questions that you get really frequently when you're starting this process. I know you had talked about the time piece, the financial, how much is this going to cost? How long will it take? Um, is there anything else that you get asked a lot in this initial process? Well, yeah, I mean, I, quite a few. And I, and I should, since I the, we do get asked about how long does it take and how much does it cost? And that is, it varies, but I may as well, you know, try to answer it. Because usually lawyers will say, well, it depends. And of course it depends. And we've all, I've had cases that cost equity litigated over hundreds of thousands of dollars and I've had mm-hmm. cases that cost one or two thousand dollars but in a, in a typical collaborative case you know lawyers charge uh, by hourly rate you know, uh-huh. you know if you talk to divorce lawyers in town you'll find them anywhere from a hundred and fifty an hour to five hundred dollars an hour most collaborative lawyers probably run from 175 to 350 an mm-hmm. hour I've done probably 800 collaborative cases in 75 percent of the time, my fees are going to run somewhere between four and nine thousand dollars, mm-hmm. which means the other lawyers' fees will run about that between four and nine thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and that means we'll have to add the other team members. So if you use a financial neutral more, and the child specialist more, or the coach more, mm-hmm. then the lawyers' fees might be less, and then you have the other members of the team. But usually, the whole team most of the time is going to be somewhere between ten and twenty-five thousand mm-hmm. dollars. No, I've had cases of less. I've done collaborative cases for two or three thousand dollars. I've done some for a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. But generally, that's about the time frame, or that's about the cost. And the time frame is generally most cases resolved somewhere between three to six months. Okay. And some that go more, some that go less. Um, but that's generally um, what we see. Okay. So, yeah. Thank you. It's nice to have. Some actual numbers yeah, to go with yeah. it. And it can vary, but it's helpful people to prepare. And I think, you know, whether that's a lot of money or not kind of depends on how people look at that. On the one hand, I always say, you know, pay for the right things. I mean, I, I often think a divorce should cost or will cost somewhere equivalent to what it might cost to sell your house, for example. If you've got a $400,000 house, it might cost 30, twenty or thirty thousand to sell that. Well, it mm-hmm. might be that the divorce, hopefully, the divorce can be done in less than that. Mm-hmm. But it's important to be able to spend the money on the right things. If you're spending money on arguments and driving each other farther apart, it's worth it. You know, it, it's not money well spent. Right. But if you're spending your time and money planning and getting a good parenting plan mm-hmm. and a good financial plan, and sometimes if you get the right team, they can save enough on finances and tax issues to cover the cost of the process, mm-hmm. then you you can get something that's of value. So think of the cost of t- divorce in terms of value. Mm-hmm. If you can emerge from the divorce as stronger co-parents, mm-hmm. better communicators, and better at your finances, then some investment is not a bad idea. Yes. And, and you have to think about how much can you invest in order to get the kind of divorce 
that will help you and your family achieve the goals that they want. Well, mm-hmm. I yeah, I mean, I would say peace of mind is definitely worth yeah, the cost. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah. And setting yourself up for starting, you know, post-divorce on the best foot possible yeah. would be a very important piece of it too. And that, and that's a really important point is that what people don't think about is the post-divorce world is when it really begins. What you're really trying to do is, is create a blueprint for your life going forward. Right. And, and, and the measure of whether the divorce agreement was successful was how things happened in those five or 10 years afterwards. So often people say, I just want to be done. And I get that being mm-hmm. a divorce is no fun. Right. But you want to be done in a way that allows you to be better at things, to, to allows you to get along, to be able to co-parent, to be able to handle your finances, mm-hmm. and to take the time to set things up so that your post-divorce world will be better. And then it, that if you have disagreements five years down the road, you aren't running off to court. You come back to your team of professionals and work on the resolution. If somebody lost their job or somebody mm-hmm. moves, then you can have a collaborative way of resolving it rather than continuing to fight down the road. Oh, that's so, wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That was so much good information today, Ron. Um, I wanted to just plug that you do have a book out if people would like some more information on this collaborative process. And can you tell us what the title of that book is? Sure. It's called The Collaborative Way to Divorce, The Revolutionary Method that Results in Less Stress, Lower Costs, and Happier Kids Without Going to Court. And it's available on Amazon and, and you know, um, pretty easy to access. Wonderful. Good. And so we'll have that in the show notes. We'll also have Ron's contact information and, of course, the Daisy Camp uh, website information if you'd like to get involved and find some resources that can help you. So thanks again, Ron, for coming in today. Thank you, Emily, for having me. And thanks to all you out there who are listening. Thank you so much for showing up today and investing a little time in yourself. If you found this episode helpful but would like to dive deeper, come over to www.daisycamp.org and check out our community resources. We also have recommended reading and upcoming events, both in person in the Minneapolis area and worldwide through our online webinars. Daisy Camp's board, staff, and speakers volunteer their time and are here to help you. Come on over and get involved. We'd love to have you join us. Thanks again and keep listening.